Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the fourth annual Florida Frontiers Festival celebrates our cultural diversity with performers including the Lee Boys. Our job is to touch people through our music, and it doesn't matter what walk of life, what religion, where, who, what type of genre music they play. If we could touch somebody through our music, then our job is done. We'll discuss the 19th century writings of Isa Duffus Hardy. She kind of fits into that canon of late Victorian era novelists. She wrote primarily romantic uh, style love stories and that sort of thing. And we'll talk about more than 100 prehistoric canoes discovered at Noonan's Lake. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Come on. The Lee Boys are headlining the fourth annual Florida Frontiers Festival at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. The event is presented at no charge to the public from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Saturday, October 12th. Holly Baker is manager of the Brevard Museum and explains that the Florida Frontiers Festival celebrates our state's diverse cultural heritage. The Florida Frontiers Festival is a multicultural celebration of Florida history and culture through music, visual art, dance, and other cultural expressions. For example, um, African-American visual art will have traditional Spanish dance, will have traditional Florida folk music. If you've ever been to the Florida Folk Festival in White Springs, Florida, it's very much in that spirit, but on a smaller scale. It's no accident that the Florida Frontiers Festival shares the name of this program and our public television series. Our focus on the multicultural history and culture of Florida inspired this event. The Spanish gave our state its name more than 500 years ago, and with the exception of a brief French occupation and 20 years of British rule, the Spanish controlled Florida for almost three centuries. Holly Baker says that our Spanish heritage will be represented by Alberia Flamenco dancers with Luis Alfredo and the Rumba Brothers. They play classical Spanish acoustic music with traditional Spanish dance, and they actually are important because they represent the long history of the Spanish in Florida. Um, the Spanish first arrived in Florida in 1513, and they settled in St. Augustine in 1565. And um, Florida was controlled by the Spanish until 1821. So it's important for the Florida Frontiers Festival to celebrate our um, time-honored, um, long Spanish connection and heritage.
The Lee Boys are headlining the fourth annual Florida Frontiers Festival at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. Alvin Lee is guitarist and co-founder of the Miami-based band. Really, we came up out of the church. My father was the minister, and he played this style of music, taught his boys, so we taught our nephews, and that's kind of how the Lee Boys got started. Uh, we took it outside of the Fort Walls in 2002 when my father and my brother died. My brother, Glenn Lee, was a co-founder. And um, we've been playing out ever since then, professionally. The Lee Boys play a style of music that's called Sacred Steel. Well, the Sacred Steel is sacred because the sound came from out of the church, and still was because of the steel bar. Uh, this folklore of Robert Stone uh, kind of gave it the name Sacred Steel because he was doing you know, a documentary back way back in the 90s of this, this African-American music. You know, guys playing at the pedal steel, you know, you really didn't see that much. But so that's how the Sacred Steel got started. And, you know, you've had the Camel Brothers, Robert Randolph, Arbor Gent, Calvin Cook, and, um, you know, all these guys that come out, you know, in the Lee Boys. We've been doing it for now over 20 years professionally. So, you know, but we've been playing this style of music all our lives, really. That's what we grew up in. In the hands of the Lee Boys, the Sacred Steel style incorporates funk, soul, blues, rock, and gospel music. I mean, we, like in the band, you know, the uncles, us older ones, you know, we 40s, early 50s, and I got my younger generation, second generation's uh, nephews there, like 30s, late 20s, and you know, so we, we, we've all grew up with, with 80s music, Michael Jackson, uh, uh, Stevie Wonder from the country listeners. So we, we, we just incorporate everything. The Lee Boys play big events like the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival and Bonnaroo. But Alvin Lee says the band also enjoys smaller venues like the Florida Frontiers Festival. Yes, we do. I mean, we like the intimate venues. I think sometimes that comes from uh, growing up in the church playing this style of music, you know, we play for small congregations mainly. And then, they, you know, we have our big assemblies and we play for a large congregation. But, you know, that intimate feeling of, because we grew up in like a Pentecostal church, so like getting that feeling, that closeness to your audience, small setting where you can kind of feel the music and feel the energy that's going around. So I think we like playing that, you know, but also we get the same feeling when we're playing the, the, the Bonnaroo's and uh, New Orleans Jazz Festivals as well. The Lee Boys' performance at last year's Florida Frontiers Festival was recorded, and earlier this year, the band released their first live album. Mark from MC Records, he's been following us for years, and finally he said, oh, let me, let's, let's do a live recording. So we just took some of the shows that we did in 2018, and, you know, we even did one at the Frontier Festival, and um, it was just turned out good. I, I think you can, Lee Boys is, is captured the best when we're alive. And you could feel the energy, and you know. So I think uh, we we we're excited about this album. Listen, I'm not tired, I'm not weary, but I'm on my way, on my way, y'all. I'm not tired, I'm not weary, but I'm on my way, on my way. Alvin Lee appreciates the fact that the Florida Frontiers Festival is a celebration of multicultural heritage and says it's important to him that the Lee Boys reach diverse audiences. Yes, it is. I think because the music is universal. And I think um, 
like our job is to touch people through our music and it doesn't matter what walk of life what religion where who what type of genre of music they play if we could touch somebody through our music then our job is done Former Lee Boys guitarist Roosevelt Collier is having a successful solo career, recently warming up for J.J. Gray and Mofro, but the Lee Boys remains a family band. Alvin Lee. It is a family band. It's uh, three brothers and th three nephews, and then we've had um, uh, Roosevelt, uh, my other nephew that plays still, he's kind of ventured off on his own, and we've, we've um, got another close family member. Chris Johnson is our front guy now that's playing pedal steel, and he's phenomenal. And um, he's, he's also featured on this late, latest album that we're doing. And, um, but, yeah, we grew up playing as my father started, his sons, and three of my sister's sons, they playing, and now we're teaching our boys. So it's like a fourth generation of this tradition going on. Also taking the stage at the fourth annual Florida Frontiers Festival will be singer-songwriter Chris Call, who is known for his songs about Florida topics, acoustic rocker Mike Garcia, and Florida heritage musician Bob Lusk. Holly Baker. He does music from everything from uh, Gamble Rogers, uh, Frank Thomas songs, to traditional songs like um, the songs that were collected by Zora Neale Hurston in Florida with the WPA in the 1930s. The WPA, it's the Works Progress Administration, and they traveled throughout Florida collecting songs for the government. They traveled uh, through turpentine camps. Um, they traveled through African-American uh, towns and communities throughout Florida. And they um, talked to um, Cuban communities in Florida and uh, Bahamians and uh, Key West. Basically, they made it their goal to not only collect these folk songs of Floridians, but to make sure that they were remembered and preserved and uh, to this day, you can still find these songs on the Library of Congress or the Florida Memory website, thanks to their efforts back in the 1930s. And those are the kind of songs that Bob Lusk likes to play. And so we're very glad that he's going to be at the Florida Frontiers Festival as well. His beard may be stubble like cut over sugar cane field. His clothes may be dirty, but the look in his eyes lets you know he won't yield. He's from a breed that has died, but he has survived. The world that he once knew is gone. He's an old cracker cowman existing a long way from home. The Florida Frontiers Festival includes music, dance, and visual art. Original Highwayman artist R.L. Lewis will be displaying work and raffling off one of his paintings. The Highwaymen were a, a group of African-American artists who painted in Florida in the 1950s through the 1970s. They painted Florida landscapes in a flamboyant style, and actually um, my grandmother had a couple of those paintings when I was a kid, and it's always been one of my lifelong goals to own a Florida Highwayman painting, so it's very cool that he's going to have a raffle of one of his paintings at the Florida Frontiers Festival 
maybe I'll get a chance to win it as well. But yes, the highwaymen, their work, they sold it from the back of their cars traveling along Florida's east coast in the beginning. And over the years, the interest uh, in their work has increased exponentially. And the paintings that people like my grandma used to buy for less than $50 back in the 50s and 60s are now worth much, much more. And you can find many of the Florida highwaymen painters at festivals and events throughout Florida. And um, it's always great to see them and to get a a chance to um, see their artwork in person as well. Vendors at the Florida Frontiers Festival will be selling Florida books, native plants, local food, beer, and more. The event is on the grounds of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science, which will be open to the public at no charge. The centerpiece of the museum is the People of Windover exhibit, which looks at a fascinating group of indigenous people. Holly Baker. It's a wonderful museum, and we have everything from the Ice Age to the Space Age pertaining to Florida history. In our Ice Age exhibit, you can see a mastodon, a giant sloth, a smilodon. Um, You can see our pioneer exhibit that discusses early pioneer settlers and the history in Florida. And then also we have a Hubble exhibit that NASA helped us put together. And our newest exhibit is an Apollo journey exhibit. It's about the Apollo program, and it's to celebrate the moon landing, but also Brevard County's connection to the space program. So we're very excited for folks to get a chance to check out our museum for free during the day of the Florida Frontiers Festival and to get a chance to learn about Florida history from all different eras. The fourth annual Florida Frontiers Festival will be held Saturday, October 12th at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. More information is at floridafrontiersfestival.com. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, Isa Duffus Hardy was a British Victorian-era novelist, but she also visited and wrote about Florida, right? 
Yeah, that's right, Ben. During the Victorian era, there were hundreds of these types of novels that were written, and she kind of fits into that canon of late Victorian era novelists. She wrote primarily romantic uh, style love stories and that sort of thing. But she and her mother actually traveled to the United States twice in her life. First, they did an east-west crossing around the continent, and she wrote a little bit about her travels. But then in 1882, she spent the entirety of their trip in Florida. They came through the South, but spent most of her time several months in Florida during the wintertime, which was very, very common. A lot of Northerners came to Florida to spend their winters. You know, the the climate, of course, was more agreeable than the harsh winters up north. And a lot of Europeans, believe it or not, actually traveled to Florida. So in the 1870s and 1880s, the decades after the Civil War and kind of after the end of federal reconstruction, the tourism industry in Florida really came into its own and catered to wealthy European and, and Northern visitors, Hardy and her mother, of course, being part of that group. Now, Hardy was born in 1850 in Enfield, England, and her mother, Lady Mary Ann Hardy, was actually already an established writer. And it's probably where Isa picked up the craft. In fact, she published her first novel at the age of 15. And by the end of her life in the 1920s, she had published well over a dozen novels, most of which were fiction, again, within that kind of romantic Victorian era uh, genre. But she did write several nonfiction travel logs, one of which was about her time in Florida. Hardy's observations about Florida were not always positive or flattering, though, were they? No, they weren't. And the travelogue that she wrote about Florida was published in England in 1886, and it was entitled Oranges and Alligators. And again, it chronicles her two-month journey traveling through the state in the early 1880s, we believe 1882 to 1883. So again, very early on in that tourism period. But she talks about first coming via a steamship line from New York to Fernandina in northeast Florida, and then a short train trip down to Jacksonville. From Jacksonville, they went to Maitland, and from Maitland spent some time around Central Florida and Orlando. Then they traveled over to the Gulf Coast, eventually actually over to East Central Florida along the Indian River Lagoon system, and then traveled back up to Jacksonville, then to New York and back to England. So over that two-month journey, which again was very common for a lot of these European travelers, she got to see kind of the broad spectrum of, of the people that were living in Florida, and she describes all of that in her book. But as you said, it wasn't all that flattering. A lot of the literature coming out of Florida at least by the state government and by, you know, Florida boosters and those trying to sell land were entirely positive. Everybody was talking about this wonderful Eden. And the very beginning of her book, chapter one, the first line says here, quote, Florida is the best lied about state in the union, (laughs) observed a northern tourist who had spent some few days in the state, unquote. So she goes on to set up her travelogue and talk about the pitfalls, at least, of these immigrants who were coming to Florida, primarily English people who were coming to Florida, trying to make their fortunes or at least expand their fortunes into the citrus industry, which was really taking off in Florida at that time. She goes on uh, later on in the first chapter to write, quote, Poor Florida suffers alike from the onslaughts of its enemies and the eulogies of its indiscreet friends. Strike the balance between the views of these two parties, and you come somewhere near the truth about this state, which has its good and bad qualities mixed and blended, like the average human being who is either angel nor devil. Although if he be a politician, his fellow creatures will have it that he is one or the other and nothing between." 
But she goes on to talk a little bit about the people. It was typical at that time, especially for someone of her socioeconomic standing, to take a very sort of paternalistic view of these yeoman farmers who she describes as the poor white crackers. She talks quite a bit about the African-Americans, many of whom were probably born into slavery. We're talking only a few decades after emancipation, who were living in Florida. And she talks about their poor living conditions and the idleness of, of these workers and the fact that, you know, they're, they're dragging down the economy, but these industrious immigrants are coming to save them, that sort of attitude. So you do get a lot of that tone. But if you sort of read between the lines, you can pick up a lot of really interesting information from an outside observer. So looking at it from that standpoint, we can kind of travel through Florida in the 1880s and kind of get a, a look on the ground, at least, of, of what life was like for Floridians at that time period. And Hardy ends up in Tarpon Springs, which is a unique Florida town best known for its Greek culture that came with the sponge diving industry in the early 1900s. But Hardy visited there before the Greeks arrived. Yeah, that's right. Again, this is one of those little glimpses into a little piece of Florida history that we don't often see described, at least in publications or in writing. And before going to Tarpon Springs, she actually traveled from Orlando to Tampa. And upon her initial arrival in Tampa, this is how she described it. Quote, In the zenith of a glowing afternoon, we arrive at Tampa, a loosely scattered, tropical-looking town, its white houses and white fences contrasting brightly with the vivid blue sky. The roads are wide and sandy, the great oak trees heavily veiled in moss, and here we find the oranges still hanging in lavish, golden glory in the groves. So they spent about a day in Tampa and then went north up to Tarpon Springs, and this is how she describes Tarpon Springs. Tarpon Springs is a wonderful three years child. It is hard to realize how this bright, flourishing little town can have sprung up in so short a time, where only three years before was forest primeval. We have seen no prettier nor promising young settlement in all of Florida, and certainly none more trim and neat. It is a bright, pure, and wholesome-looking place, with its white fences, its broad, smooth sidewalks, its generally well-finished and clean air." She goes on to talk about the buildings. There are about four stores, three hotels, believe it or not, a sawmill, a blacksmith shop, a town hall. And then at the end, she says, of course, a schoolhouse, because what American settlement can be found without its school, unquote. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. If you'd like to see the Isa Duffus Hardy book we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. One of the most fascinating archaeological discoveries in Florida was at Noonan's Lake near Gainesville. As historian Robert Casanello reports, that's where more than 100 prehistoric canoes were found. I think there's far more significance to the prehistoric dugout canoe and what that really means to not only transportation, but trade, travel, exchange, and the ability for Native Americans to move far more widely Uh, far greater distances. We have evidence of hundreds of canoes now in Florida's prehistoric record. And that, to me, is suggestive that there's far more movement on the landscape, far more use of this as a means of transportation. 
That was Donna Rule from the Florida Museum of Natural History talking to me about pre-Columbian dugout canoes. It's hard to imagine traveling around Florida on anything other than the many roads or even interstate highway system that line Florida's small towns and large cities. But before European contact, the single most important technology for traveling across the peninsula was the dugout canoe. Donna Rule is the foremost scholar working on canoes in the state. She was the lead researcher for the discovery of 101 dugout canoes at Lake Noonan near Gainesville. Because of drought conditions, the bed of the lake was exposed, as were the ancient canoes. Donna Rule and her team quickly preserved as many of them as they could, some dating as far back as 5,000 years ago. Donna Rule here tells me what a canoe excavation site can tell us about the people who used them. We have indirect evidence of canoes by not only the obvious things like paddles and poles, what they were using to manipulate the canoes in and around areas, but we have exotic goods showing up at sites that you wouldn't expect, or non-local goods, if you will. Maybe that's a better term. We're finding chert in areas that chert wouldn't be. We're finding soapstone bowls that they couldn't carry a 40 or 50 or 60 pound material resource that comes from Georgia and find it on an island off the coast of Florida. Um, these are the kinds of things that are very significant in how the canoe was a major part and an integral part of prehistoric life. Having 101 canoes in one location at Lake Noonan was an enormous find for a researcher like Rule. Here she explains what she was able to understand about the design of the canoe over time. Interestingly, for years, people thought that the dugout canoe went through this evolution where you had a more crude form, if you will, or a blunt-ended uh, canoe where both the bow and the stern were similar in shape. Um, but after the result of the 2000 uh, finding of the Noonan's Lake canoes, we had the opportunity to date 53 of the 101 and found that the earliest canoe as well as one of the more recent ones, actually shows that that wasn't the case at all. There isn't quite this unilinear evolutionary pattern, and what we're seeing is very similar forms through time, both in how they were crafted as well as the shapes of these canoes with similar bows and sterns, as well as how they may have created thwarts inside of them for sitting on or standing, etc. All of these various components to the canoe do not seem to have a drastic change in shape until well into the contact period. So for almost five to 7,000 years, we see a very similar form and a very similar manufacture, whether it's canoes from North Florida or North Central Florida or even South Florida from the few that we have. Change did come to the Indian canoe, with European contact. Donna Rule tells me about that impact. I'm not sure that the European influence is what changed the canoe. I think the craftsmanship at some levels with the Seminole canoes coming in, there are similarities in earlier Seminole canoes, the ones that we know that date to the archaeological record, if you will, that's pre-contact as opposed to post-contact. I think it's the artisan and the change in the tools that they're using. Instead of using shell, or lithic or stone resources, basically, depending on where they are in the state, if they're in the areas where we have these kinds of stone tools versus shell along the coast, etc., they're beginning to use metal. And I think the metal tools um, are allowing for a more angular shape. They're allowing for a little bit more of a development of the bow 
and more pronounced shoulders up towards the prow. And that is something that people have suggested has been something that's a signature of some of these artisan and craftsmen of the Seminole, and possibly because of the fact that they were more in the Everglades, they were moving through grasses, they might have needed a broader-shouldered flat front that allowed them to penetrate through those grasses a little bit more easily than what the prehistoric rounded dugout needed to do. I interviewed Donna Rule and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. Look for it on iTunes. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Holly Baker, and this week, Robert Casanello. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.